Intentionally Grounded. I'm your host, Brian Willey, along with my co-host, John Kesselring. Episode 63 features Stacy Nelson of Crucial Conversations. In this episode, we discuss the art of crucial conversations and how coaches, colleagues, and athletes can navigate difficult conversations to produce a result that is beneficial for all parties involved. The skills and tips shared in this episode will equip listeners with the tools necessary to manage their emotions and navigate successfully through their next crucial conversation when it inevitably arises. This season, Intentionally Grounded is partnering with First Down Playbook. For coaches looking for a playbook software that is user-friendly and can deliver the clarity necessary to share and communicate your scheme with coaches and players alike, check out First Down Playbook. For more information, check out their website at firstdownplaybook.com and for our listeners of our show, enter the code IGFB20 when purchasing individual or program memberships to receive a discount at checkout. Again, that code is IGFB20. Don't forget to check out our website at IGFootballCoach.com for all our blog posts and podcast episodes. And check out our newly released YouTube channel that houses the video cast version of our podcast episodes as well, along with additional content related to leadership, football, and coaching development. Season 3. Episode 13 of Intentionally Grounded with Stacey Nelson starts now. Okay, we're here with Stacey Nelson as our guest tonight. Mr. Nelson, please introduce yourself to our audience. Uh, hi, nice to meet all of you. Uh, I have been uh, a teacher and professor for about 23 years, uh, also an athletic director and coach. I coach men's basketball at the college level for about 10 years in the NAIA. Um, had a chance to do my uh graduate work um, in education, my doctoral degree in education, and part of my doctoral dissertation was on sport and moral reasoning, um, and had just a, a great opportunity to do some investigation into that. Uh, as a result of that, we actually, um, in our athletic program, all of our athletes had to take a um, two-hour um, class from me in sport and moral reasoning before they could actually play. Um, so it gave us an opportunity to talk about, you know, sport from a philosophical and, you know, sociological standpoint, why we were doing this. Um, we actually, as a part of that, instituted a, what we called final quarter. So after the games were over, whether they were, you know, soccer out on the field or basketball or volleyball, whatever they were, uh, we required all of our, our players to be present for this quarter, and we invited the other team to come in after the game and after they had, you know, perhaps showered before they took off so that we could have a chance to actually engage with them and become friends as a result of, you know, this athletic uh, contest. Uh, you know, some people have called athletic contests a mutual quest for excellence, and we believe that that is always possible, but that it goes beyond the court and it, it provides us an opportunity to get to know them as people and as friends in, in the process. And so we had a chance to do that for about 10 years and actually um, uh, NPR out of Boston came and ran a program on us one, um, one day, came to the class and also came to one of our uh, contests that evening. So um, kind of had a chance to live my dream. I mean, in the sense of, um, you know, a lot of times uh, you're something like a doctoral dissertation 
may have some great information, but it sits on the shelf. Uh, and I had a chance to kind of live mine, and it was just uh, just incredibly valuable. That's just uh, almost at a loss words and taken back just about the idea and the concept behind that. And Brian and I are both high school teachers, and, and the idea that you would ask every kid in an extracurricular activity to take that is something I think that would be unbelievably beneficial for a, for a culture, for a school, for an organization, for a teacher, everybody. Um, that's phenomenal. But what, Stacy, what influenced you to dedicate yourself to that type of work and, and the work that you're doing with businesses and organizations and helping them become better, really better communicators? You know, what I discovered was, is that um, in, in, in coaching, there are always crucial moments uh, in a game. Um, and how you handle those crucial moments, whether as a player or as a coach, often ends up uh, dictating uh, the real influence. Because uh, I've, I've come to believe that the greatest capacity that we have as human beings is the ability to influence other people. We can't really change them. But what we can do is create an environment where they're willing to haps, perhaps be influenced by the measured and uh, way of wisdom. And if we can be at those crucial moments um, less um, emotional uh, and not, not get caught up in the emotion, but actually begin to communicate and influence in a way that will change the outcome of an individual's behavior, um, that's, that's just a, a phenomenal uh, privilege that we have. And when, when I uh, heard about a project that was actually taking place down in Florida, I uh, don't know whether you've ever heard of the Disney Town of Celebration. Um, it's actually an extension of EPCOT. Uh, EPCOT is actually an acronym that stands for Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow. And Walt Disney's dream was actually to put in a community, not just a theme park. And when I heard about this, um, I was really interested because Michael Eisner is the one who picked up Disney's dream after his death and sent out his Imagineers across America to find out what made great communities. And in 1994, they distilled all of this information and they built it on five cornerstones. And two I was very interested in. One was education. Uh, they were going to give $17.5 million to the Osceola County school system to start from scratch. And the other was healthcare, and I've had a real passion around healthcare. Um, and so they were gonna do something with that. And to make a long story short, I went down, made a presentation to them, and they said, would you like to come down and start working with us in leadership development uh, out of this hospital, and also uh, in the community and in the school? And I said, yeah, I would really love to do that. And one of the first things that we did is we combed the literature. We literally, for, for two to three months, looked at all of the literature on how change takes place and how do you influence change. And that's when I came across a group of researchers that had not written a book, but their research was absolutely phenomenal. And we began implementing this in this uh, leadership uh, kind of supposed in sym symposium that we were doing. And uh, about two years later, they wrote a book called Crucial Conversations. Um, and I was so uh, taken by their research and by um, what Crucial Conversations could do if a person could begin to master those, uh, the influence that it could have, 
So what I ended up doing is basically uh, uh, trading coaching students to coaching professionals and businesses on how you take those crucial moments um, when the stakes are high, the opinions are opposing, and the emotions are strong. How do you take those and use them as a leverage to influence dramatically uh, two things? We call them the, big, the two big R's your results and your relationship. Because it's interesting, whenever you talk with people and you ask them where they're stuck or where they're not getting what they want, um, I guarantee you, if you will backtrack, you will be able to find a moment in time, we again call this the crucial moment, where someone failed to do what they were supposed to do or what they did do was detrimental to the results that you're looking for and if you're going to actually get the results that you want, you're going to have to take that moment in time and be able to communicate so respectfully and so honestly with them that they are influenced to want to change their behavior. And that's what we found is, is the difference between good leaders and great leaders, uh, between good teams and great teams, between good organizations and great organizations, is how they handle those crucial moments and find a way to openly and honestly discuss the issue and talk it out rather than uh, kind of going to what we call uh, some form of silence or some form of uh, compelling and acting it out rather than talking it out. You kind of touched on some of this here um, in terms of what a crucial conversation would be and what's the basis for your research. But for those of you who are unfamiliar with what the crucial conversations model looks like, can you define that for our listeners? What defines a crucial conversation? Yeah, there are three elements uh, that make a conversation crucial. Um, the stakes are high. It means a lot to both of us. A lot's riding on this. And at the same time, we have opposing opinions. You believe strategy A is the way to accomplish this. I believe strategy B is the way to accomplish this. And as a result of those first two elements of high stakes and opposing opinion, um, strong emotion comes along without an invitation. <laughs> it's just, uh, we don't handle these very well. You know, you've often heard of emotional intelligence. Well, we often lose emotional intelligence under those conditions. And yet we have found that how you handle these kinds of conversations has a disproportionate impact upon even casual conversations when the stakes aren't high because it has such a lasting impact when we handle it poorly and yet it has such a lasting impact if we handle it well that it can actually begin to make the difference between connecting with a person, finding a way to work this out together, or finding ourselves estranged from each other and frustrated with each other. How do we get unstuck in these crucial conversations? You just touched on a term that I think is so important, emotional intelligence, which I think is, especially in Brian and I's world with teenagers, that's, I mean, that's tough because um, they are emotional. So when you're, when you're stuck in these crucial conversations, how do you move from confrontation or uh, discomfort to an open, honest communication? How does it evolve to that? One of the things that we have found, and this is based upon a, a lot of brain research, is that under the, these conditions where the emotions are very strong, there is a way in a fairly short period of time, and it's a skill set. It doesn't happen overnight. It's, it's just like any 
um, uh, you know, skill set. In fact, one of my, my favorite quotations, you may have heard this, that um, knowledge is only a rumor until it lives in the muscle. Um, I love that. And we know that, you know, in terms of, of sport biomechanics, that once you teach a skill set, at first, a person is going through it in kind of a methodical way and they make mistakes, and yet we try to course correct that, that swing plane or that shooting plane, as the case may be, in terms of the release, etc. But eventually, if they put enough practice in it, it becomes almost automatic. And what we have found is, is that when the brain is emotionally flooded, one of the things that can lower that fairly quickly is for us in our brains to begin to stop and ask ourselves a question. And the question is, is what do I really want here right now? And then you begin to subcategorize that. What do I want for me? What do I want for you? What do I want for the relationship? And uh, what, if it's an organizational issue, what do I want for the organization? And just the fact that I would internally stop and create a gap between stimulus and response and step back and ask myself those questions, the research shows that the brain begins to lower the emotional level. I become much more logical because I'm taking time to quickly assess what it is I really want. And if we can do that, uh, it allows us to step into the conversation and create something called dialogue rather than debate. Um, if we can get to dialogue where I'm going to share with you what I think and feel about this, but here's the key, because of that process that I went through in my brain, I'm inviting you in to challenge what I actually put on the table. And I'm just as interested in hearing what you have to say and genuinely considering it at that point than I am simply on taking my issue and becoming aggressive or assertive with that, assuming that I have a monopoly on the truth, and no one does. Kind of go along with that and build off that. The healthy dialogue really kind of exists in that safe zone in terms of where we both feel safe to contribute um, to the overall dialogue of the confrontation or the issue. So making the conversation safe is always an important step in that facilitating dialogue. So what are some practical ways to create safety within a conversation? Well, one of the things, uh, again, uh, under the conditions of high stakes opposing opinions, strong emotions, is to realize that the other person is prone to misunderstand what you say at that point in time. Um, but one of the things that we have found is that you can help this whole process by creating safety. And safety is a function of two variables. The other person has to believe that you care about what they care about. And they also have to believe that you care about them. And if either of those two factors are missing, they will not feel safe. So one of the things that we've tried to help people understand is that whenever we go into these conversations, we're often totally focused on what I'm gonna say. What's the content? How am I gonna persuade you? And I, what, I, what I failed to realize, and the research bears this out, is that people rarely become defensive about what you're saying, the content. They become defensive because of why they think you're saying it, the intent. So here's the, here's the bottom line. If you trust my intent, you can listen to any content. 
And what we've got to do is clarify our intent. So I might say to Brian, you know, Brian, the, the reason I, I want to hold this conversation is I know we've had some differences of opinion on this. And I want to be clear that my intent is to better understand why you believe that your solution is really a solution. Now, if I can walk into the conversation clarifying my intent to want to better understand, and I'm seeking first to understand, then most likely when you're through and I'm better understanding what you've laid out for me, um, that often turns around and you're wanting more, you're most likely to want to better understand me as a result of making that clarification of why I want to hold the conversation. So anytime we can begin to create those two variables of, I want you to know I care about what you care about and I care about you. Now, again, that can't be words. That has to be expressed in voice intonation and the manner in which I engage and listen. Am I, am I genuinely listening to understand or am I internally listening to debunk and debate and to uh, challenge your opinion. It doesn't mean that you can't challenge it, but the most important thing that you can do in any crucial conversation is find a way to create a mutual purpose with the other person. And if we can find a mutual purpose, even though we may have differences of opinion, we're much more likely to eventually find a way to resolve this. And in the process of resolving it, being 100% honest with each other, but 100% respectful. It's easy for emotions to cloud our judgment when the stakes are elevated in a crucial conversation. And thus, sometimes we say things that we either didn't intend to say, or like you kind of touched on, you don't say it with the intent you meant to say it with. It kind of goes, it's not what you're saying, it's how you're saying it. What are some strategies to effectively control our emotions when we are confronted with a crucial conversation? Well, there are, there are a couple of things you can do. One is to kind of stop and ask yourself those questions. What do I really want? And there's a difference between what I want and what I really want. So if I can ask myself internally, what do I really want for you, for me, for the other person? The other piece is, and one of the things that we've been able to show research, um, you probably have heard many times that if we could just create a gap between stimulus and response. Um, the question is, is what do you do in that gap? Well, one of the things that we tend to do when we're emotionally flooded is I assume the worst about you uh, or the, the other person on the other side. We call this mastering my story, tending into victim, villain, and helpless mentality. I believe that I'm, you know, the victim here. I didn't do anything to deserve this. And you're the villain and you're the real problem. And as a result of this, I'm helpless to do anything about it. And what we've got to do is find a way to get out of that victim, villain, and helpless mentality. And one of the first ways to do that is to separate what are facts from what are stories. And facts are defined as something that is observable and measurable. Um, stories are defined as what we call judgments, conclusions, and attributions. And the emotionally flooded mind doesn't do a very good job of separating facts from stories. So when I think that you're hard-headed, and we often run this exercise, well, I'll show a video clip of an individual who is 
uh, being pretty aggressive with another person. And I'll say to the, to, you know, the, the classroom or the, you know, uh, leadership, if you had to give uh, some feedback to this individual, uh, what feedback would you give that would be factual? And they'll say things to me like, well, he was aggressive. And I say, is that a fact? And they say, yeah, well, yeah, it is a fact. He was aggressive. And then so I'll ask this question. What did he do or say that led you to believe that he was aggressive? And they'll often say, well, he came in, he put his hands on the table, he leaned in towards the person sitting down. And I said, what did you just share with me? Well, facts. Yeah. And you have to get better at separating facts from story because when you do that, it lowers the level of emotion and you become more curious and less judgmental in the process of engaging other people. So that's one of the skills that we can learn to do is to go back and say, now wait, before I open my mouth and say something, do I actually have any facts? And by uh, the, the whole concept here is before I speak, if I can do that, I become less reactive, okay, and more reflective. So internally, I'm doing some really good things for myself, and I'm also doing some good things for the other person because the, the safest way to open any crucial conversations is with the facts, not judgments, not conclusions, not attributions. So a lot of communication is now done electronically and digitally in today's society, and that often leaves a lot of communication up for interpretation. So how can we adapt the lessons of crucial conversations to fit electronic or digital dialogue that may come up in the form of an email, maybe a message board post, or maybe even a social media interaction? The first thing is to realize that when you read that, the likelihood of you understanding this with the correct uh, intent of the other person is probably less than 8%. Uh, uh, communication experts will tell you that the least effective way to communicate is in a written form, whether it's a tweet, etc. So you always have to go into that saying, you know, I need to be curious. <laughs> I need to be less judgmental. And I need to read this, but then I need to step back and again, say, what do I really want? And, and when I then uh, send the email back, I may want to ask for some clarification to better understand why they're sharing this information with me and what it is that they really want as the intended outcome. Now, when you write a message to someone initially, the best thing that you can do, again, is internally do the things that we've talked about. What do I really want? Uh, creating this gap between stimulus and response. Start with the facts. So you say to me, Stace, of the last 10 times that we've held this meeting, uh, you have missed seven times. You've, mi you've been late the other three, and you've apologized and promised to be on time. Now, what you've just shared with me, and you have to do some homework, if that's true, that's pretty powerful. But all you've shared with me is facts. And then you say, you go to the, to the story, and I'm beginning to wonder, Stace, if you just don't believe that this meeting is worth your time and effort, uh, and whether it's adding value, and then you invite the other person into the conversation. Am I missing something? Am I misunderstanding or misinterpreting this? 
So you always want to step in, start with the facts. You want to clarify your intent as to why you're holding this conversation. And you immediately clarify that you want their feedback, that you are interested in hearing what they have to say, because that's not typically what we do in a crucial conversation. We assume I know why you know, you're wanting to hold this conversation because you want to blame me. You think that I'm at fault here. And in the end, this goes down what we call the downward spiral. So anytime in a written form, you have to go out of your way to clarify in writing why I want to hold this conversation. Now, let me pause and say, anytime you can hold a crucial conversation that is apart from email, Twitter, et cetera, and pick up even the phone and talk, you're getting voice intonation you're, you're getting greater feedback than you are just with, you know, the, uh, the verbiage on that written page, which is so easy to misunderstand and make assumptions about. In the context of coaching and athletics, and a lot of our listeners, Stacey, are, are coaches, probably all of them are, almost are, or teachers. Um, coaches are often faced with many situations in which their communication will be probably rushed and their message is going to be delivered and received in a short amount of time to ensure the success. What advice do you give coaches when communicating instruction and feedback to players during an, an athletic contest when the stakes are elevated and the emotions are high? I think one of the first things that you've got to clarify, uh, and, and you do this by um, make, you know, finding a way to connect with each other because there are going to be misunderstandings. But if, if you know that I care about you and I'm giving you information because I do care, you're going to give me the benefit of the doubt. So I think you've got to uh, build great relationships. But in those moments in time, uh, I'm going to share something that, that I would encourage all of your coaches uh, to deal with. And that is this. Um, one of the, the guys uh, who's a kind of a, a neurobiologist. His, his name is um, John Medina. He wrote a book called Brain Rules a number of years ago. And he says, when you yell and scream at someone, you are preventing them from hearing what you have to say. And there's kind of a mythology that if I'm not screaming and yelling at my kids, that I don't coach well. In fact, one of my, uh, two of my coaching heroes uh, are John Wooden, uh, you know, from UCLA years ago, um, and also Tony Dungy, because Tony Dungy used to get a rap that he wasn't tough enough on his players. In fact, I heard him interviewed one time, and a question came up in the interview, and the question was, so you're saying that you don't yell at your players. What if you had a player that came to you and said, coach, I just don't get motivated unless you're screaming and yelling at me. And I thought he had a very interesting response. He said, I would stop and I would look at the player and say, listen, let me see if I can get you traded to a team where the coach screams and yells at you. And he said, the reason that I said that, he said, both of my parents were teachers. And he said, never in the history of living at home with my parents, did I ever hear them come home one day and say the following, 
you know, the kids weren't learning very well before lunch. So I screamed and yelled at them and the learning quotient went up dramatically after lunch. If we're here to teach, the best way to teach is remaining as calm as you can and dispensing the necessary information in a way that they can receive it. And I will tell you that just recently, I have um, been exposed to a coach here uh, where, where I live who doesn't just scream and yell at his kids. When they go to a timeout, the coach will continue to berate the kid in front of everyone, his own team, as well as everybody that is in uh, the audience. And, and I, I'm, I'm needing to um, hold a crucial conversation with him and simply help him to understand that two things are happening. One is that the kid is probably not hearing what he has to say. And secondly, he is flirting with the concept of shame. And shaming an individual is one of the worst, most cruel things you can do to another human being. Because if you're wanting them to influence and influence them to change, you don't do it by screaming and yelling, and you never do it by shaming that individual because you have created scars in that person's life that can sometimes take years to heal when they believe that you have failed to treat them with the respect that any human being should have. Now, taking that a step further, because you've kind of started to get into the last question that we have, which is crucial confrontation. So, you know, when we have crucial confrontations that have escalated, maybe from a lack of crucial conversation or a crucial conversation handled poorly, whether that be through a, with a parent, a, another student, an athlete, a colleague, you name it, what advice do you have to successfully navigate a crucial confrontation that goes beyond a crucial conversation? One of the things that, that you have to keep in mind is that when someone has violated an expectation, there's disappointment or bad behavior. Uh, again, our brain tends to say, what's the worst and most personal way I can interpret this? And, and the research shows that people do things for many reasons. Under those conditions, we kind of create, you know, what's called uh, the fundamental attribution error. So when this person, even when I'm driving down the road and somebody pulls in front of me and practically takes the bumper off, I tend to assume the worst and, and question their ancestry, you know, or signal that they're number one in my book, however you handle that. And there can be a whole host of reasons why people did what they did. So if I can step into the conversation and understand that there are two factors that are at play here, there is motivation. Why was this person motivated to do what they did? And secondly, do they have a skill set to do something different? We call it motivation and ability because most of the, the social science research shows that we, we use what's called six sources of influence. Uh, three of them are on the motivation side. Three of them are on the ability side. And whenever you've got one of these gaps, these confrontations, if you can step into that uh, conversation 
curious as to why the person may have been personally motivated to do this, not assuming that I know. Was there a social element that was involved? Was someone encouraging them to do this? Okay. Uh, are there some non-human factors like structural aspects of pay, perks, promotion, you know, those kinds of things that are going on? So always step into that confrontation with as much curiosity as you can to find out information around either motivation or ability. Was this person not able to do this? Did somebody disable them from following through doing what they should have done? Because if you can step into that arena and become curious as to what may be other reasons that you were not aware of, you will often come away with more information and one of the things that I've always appreciated about Martin Luther King, I heard a quotation um, several months ago that I'd never heard from, from him before. And this is what he had to say. He said, the more I know about another man, the less likely I am to hate him. But you see, you give me a little information. And when the emotions are strong, I'll make assumptions about that. And I'll come to conclusions that probably are not really legitimate because I'm not curious enough to find out why did you do that? I'm just curious. What led you to actually do this? So if we can stay calm and curious and step into the conversation and begin asking some questions, we might find out information that will surprise us. And in the, in the same time, the manner in which you're stepping into that conversation, becoming curious rather than judgmental, and it means that there's a degree of humility here. And that's part of what great crucial conversations and confrontations is. It's simply an understanding that people, A, do things for more than one reason, and B, I don't have a monopoly on the knowledge of that. So if we can create a conversation that helps us to gain better understanding of each other, the likelihood of finding a way to influence that person to want to behave differently has just dramatically increased. Well, Stacey, you've had a lot of great information for us tonight, and obviously you have your Crucial Conversations book, but what are some of the other materials our listeners can go um, explore to find out more information about you and your colleagues, and, and where can they access that information? Yeah, you'll find that uh, there uh, is uh, Crucial Conversations. You can get that online. Uh, you can... Um, you know, get the audio book, uh, it, you can, you know, download it, uh, you can do the crucial accountability, which works off the same model, but crucial conversations is really about disagreement, or crucial, uh, crucial accountability is about disappointment. Uh, we also have some work uh, called Influencer. Um, it's the book Influencer, and what we look at uh, under those conditions is how do you influence the culture, the culture of a team? I came back uh, uh, several um, months ago and was doing uh, the athletic department um, at, a, at a college, and they brought all of their coaches in, and we talked about influencer and, and how you can influence a team culture so that those students are more likely to actually engage in good behavior. And, and we've done a, a quite a bit of research in that area. In fact, uh, we wrote an article for MIT Sloan Management. And when we wrote that, when the influencer book was written, they ended up giving us an award for the change article of the year. And so it really can give you insight on how do you begin to change 
the culture of a team, the culture of an organization by influencing those crucial moments and then looking at those six sources of influence as to how that would impact certain behaviors and make them almost inevitable. Because we have found that whenever you have profound, persistent, resistant problems, um, it is often because you have multiple sources of influence that are creating conditions that make bad behavior easy and good behavior hard. And we just don't realize that because we do a fairly poor job of diagnosing that. We immediately step into the situation thinking that there's a single source of influence that is driving this bad behavior when the likelihood of that happening as a single influence is just not very good.